Conversations with Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. This is a music podcast, and speaking of music, that song that played me in is called Words That Stay. It is from the album Marilyn Bell by the band Telenovela, and my guest today is Natalie Ribbons, the splendid voice that you heard singing that song. It is a great album. It is out on Kill Rock Stars. The band camp link to Telenovela is in the show notes, as are many of the things that we talk about. Natalie Ribbons has a vintage shop, so that is that link is in there. Buy some vintage clothing that lives in Texas right now and send it to Ohio or Wisconsin or wherever the fuck you live. Why did I have to get hostile? I don't know. Anyway, this is a really great episode. I really in- enjoyed talking with Natalie. And um, we had some similar paths in life. And so we sort of understood each other, I think. Sometimes I don't pick up on things because I'm goofy in the brain. Maybe we didn't have things in common. I don't know. Um, but speaking of the show notes, uh, the there is a part two to this conversation. Just a little bit. We talk a little. We talked a little bit longer. I usually have to edit down the episodes a little bit too. So the part two lives on my Patreon. You can go to themattdwyer.com. That'll link you to my Patreon page. $5 a month, you get all the part twos, you get early releases, you get videos often of the conversations, as well as blogs and various other things. Plus, it helps keep the show going, to be quite frank. TheMattDwyer.com, also, you can get to my social media, and if you want to wear a t-shirt that says Conversations with Dwyer with the cool logo, you can do that too. And speaking of websites, my partner, Kelly Ardwar does my website and a lot of big podcasts and politicians, actors, you name it, she does it. KellyArdoire.com, also in the show notes. Um, I don't know about my intros. <laughs> I mean, I'm, it's usually I, I tend to be rushing to get the intro out so I can get the episode out. So I don't know. Do I sound professional? I like it to be just whatever this is, me talking extemporaneously. Um, also I do, I do, it is important. Climate emergency fund is I'm doing something with them. I soon will be able to announce something that I am doing really rad that will benefit the climate emergency fund, but climate crisis is real, obviously. So if you can donate some money to the climate emergency fund, they do great work. They help fund activists and various groups that do work that helps us, uh, hopefully stop climate from fucking going to shit, everybody. <laughs> I laugh, but it uh, keeps me up most nights. So please, donate if you can. I can't wait to announce what's coming. I'm going to just, you, you'll hear it, believe me. And I believe that's it. I think that's it for my show notes. There was a brief edit, by the way. She went outside. It was a beautiful day in Texas, but I cut it because we didn't need to hear. So if there's a weird little jump, I try to keep the conversations feeling flowing and natural and good like we're just talking which most of them are just a recorded conversation but sometimes i have to edit um that is it please enjoy this conversation with natalie ribbons of telenovela where did you go 
are you still an avid reader? No, I mean, I still read. Um, around the time that I met Jason, I didn't really have a t- I didn't really have a TV for a really long time when I uh, moved out of my parents' house. And so when we started dating like 10 or 11 years ago, we started getting into like serial TV shows because it was something that we could do together. And obviously that was around the same time that writing and budgets dramatically improved for serial TV. Um, you know, like Mad Men and all the HBO stuff. So I got super into that and it became kind of became my evening routine to share that together. Um, although, and so I didn't read practically any books for the past seven or eight years, but about a year ago, I've been starting to read again. Right now I'm reading Marina Abramowicz's biography. Oh, uh, and I'm about three fourths of the way through that. And it's been actually pretty life changing. I highly recommend it. That's wild. How is it life changing? Um, I would say that, well, you don't really have to be like a huge fan of like the art world to get a lot out of it. Although I am, but, um, she is just kind of an incredible person who has extreme determination and like, uh, is super devoted to kind of whatever she sets her mind to and sort of has always been that way. And, um, I don't know, just like her whole take on thinking about something that really inspires you and just going out there and doing it and like doing it to the umpteenth degree. Like she went out and lived with like Aboriginal tribes in uh, Australia for three and a half months. Um, And just such crazy, I mean, it's not crazy, I guess, but these type of adventures that the average person definitely doesn't encounter. Um, (laughs) And, and it, it really helps for me to like kind of frame and put into perspective the type of goals that I have. And it suddenly makes everything that I want to accomplish seem very attainable, you know? Yeah. Fuck. I love, that's incredible. Yeah. And I, I, Martin Shorts memoir which I saying that sounds silly, but that really inspired me. And like, I got mm. way off path in my life and it's sort of creative. I got off my creative path and just like took a fucking shit job. <laughs> Cause I felt like I was like, Oh, I got kids. I guess I should become like a fucking dipshit now and f- oh, abandon I everything. I understand that though. I understand that. I was and that, scared. That's to me. Yeah. It's totally fear based. Yeah. Um, Usually when we get off our paths, creatively speaking, it's always due to fear. Um, And I've definitely been there. Not necessarily with the shit job part. Uh, I mean, I've had shit jobs for sure, but I didn't necessarily choose them for the sake of like sacrificing art for stability type of thing, like what you're talking about. But um, yeah, I don't know. I... I just recently went through that actually and have been coming out of it for the last year. And actually, I mean, it's such a cheesy cliche, but that book, the artist's way really helped me. Are you familiar with that book? It's I pretty am. Famous. It's funny. Cause I almost suggested the, I'm going to, um, the war of art. 
Because there's the Art mm. of War, which is the one everybody started reading because of <laughs> Sopranos. I yeah. love when somebody mentions a book in a TV show and everyone's like, oh, no, I, I, no, I, like they pretend like they knew about it all along. It's like, yeah, you're full of shit. <laughs> yeah. But there's the flip of it, which is all, and I was like, oh, I need to re, because I'm sort of in an artistic transitional, not that this is about me, but, <laughs> but you know. Hey, it's about both of us. But it's you go, you, yeah, thank you for noticing my title. <laughs> But I'm, yeah, so I'm just trying to get more back to what I started, why I got into being a creative person, opposed to, like, trying to accommodate this uh, fucking hellscape nightmare of Los Angeles. (laughs) Oh, so that's where you live. I didn't realize that. Yeah, but I'm a Chicagoan, and I started in, like, theater and black box stuff and writing to write. Oh, cool. And, uh... And then I somehow my ego deceived me, <laughs> and I thought, "Hey, why not? The world should know this fucking miserable fuck, right?" <laughs> the world always uh, needs to get to know the miserable fucks. <laughs> Therein lies the secret to life. I don't know. Uh, that's interesting. You were in theater. Uh, I went to like an experimental performing arts high school that had a black box theater and was kind of involved with that for a while with like stage design. And I was a terrible actress, but uh, Are I, you sure I really you? enjoyed it. Hmm? Well, I've seen videos of you live and you have a great deal of stage presence. I find it uh, hard to, to, to believe that you would be a I think I do have stage presence, but I don't think that I'm a good actress. <laughs> um, I'm just too self-aware, I think. I, I don't really know how to, like, get into character um, and st- and stay there. I could maybe do it for, like, a second. So, you know, stage presence works more in my favor in, in the musical realm because I am able to be in the present moment for that long of a period of time, but I also just playing myself essentially. So that's a little easier, but, uh, but I did enjoy the world of theater very, very much. And I'm so grateful I got to have that experience. Um, and I really like theater people (laughs) and people that, (laughs) which I know is not universal. I always feel like there's actors and then there's the bullshit actors. And like everyone I've ever known who is like really talented and about the work tends to not be a self-involved or a less like they don't tend to be a pretentious prick. They tend to be grounded and really cool and probably drink too much. <laughs> I, I seem to be collecting talented alcoholic friends. They're they're I'm all right with I, some of the most brilliant people I know are chain smoking alholic. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, yeah. I, I would lump, not a friend of mine, but, you know, John Waters seems to probably enjoy a good drink. I bet he does, but I, I don't know for a fact. Um, I'm fascinated by this high school, though, because, like, I know there's, like, theater school, but, like, an experimental, I'm like, what what, what made it a the experimental theater high school? Um, it was, okay, so it was in Sacramento, California kind of in the suburbs and 
Um, it was called the Natomas Charter Performing and Fine Arts Academy, but it was experimental because it was a charter school. And that was kind of uh, at the very tail end of when charter schools were basically getting public money, at, but like didn't have to have teachers that, that were, um, you know, that had degrees in teaching essentially. So, you know, we had some actual teachers like the science and math teachers went to college to be a teacher, but there were, you know, lots of employees there that never went and never even graduated college, um, who were, and it was a small, my, my graduating class was about 60 people altogether. It was maybe around 400 kids from eighth grade to senior year. And we didn't have PE. It was all dance classes, like modern dance and tap and stuff like that. Um, and then we had classes like uh, contemporary ensemble, where groups of kids would form bands and make records. And um, and we had, you know, the Black Box Theater. And there was like a green screen room where they were doing digital editing stuff. And it was cool. There was a lot of stuff happening there. It was probably a little too loose. I think the school still exists and I think it got tightened up significantly since I went there because the vibe was, you know, I could say I wasn't in the mood to be in class that day to my English teacher and she'd let me go out and sit in a field and just play guitar for two hours. That's fucking uh, great. <laughs> it's great. I really enjoyed it, but you know, I'm 38 and when I, when I get into talking about like, you know, school experiences with my peers, I definitely feel like I didn't get as quality of an education in some ways, in some ways that they got. Um, but I don't regret it. I, I really enjoyed every minute of it and it saved my ass because I was getting expelled from my normal high school, McClatchy, and my parents were going to send me to um, like a really expensive private school because they were really worried I was on the wrong path. And finding that school was kind of our compromise and I had auditioned on piano and got in. And I'm really grateful I didn't go to that private school because I definitely would have gotten my ass kicked. <laughs> what, may I ask, you were doing that was on the wrong path? Um, I Mostly what it was, it was a really big high school. And our attendance office was kind of set up like a box office at a movie theater. And you could just <laughs> walk up. That's amusing. It, you know, like the glass panel with the little circle and the speaker and you're, you know, they're like, what, you know, what can we do for you? And so I started writing myself early dismissal notes almost on a daily basis. And, um, and I would just go fuck off and hang out by the train tracks, maybe smoke a little weed. Really, I wasn't up to no good. I just didn't want to be at school. I'd go hang out at the coffee shop with like the college kids down the street um, but then one day, what I didn't know is at the end of semester, they sent like photocopies of all your early dismissal notes and a manila envelope to your parents' house. And so I was always walking home from school. And one day I walk in and I sit at the piano because I had to practice piano for two hours a day and I'm playing piano and my mom comes up and she's, she has the newspaper and she's like, Hey, take a look at this, uh, this new photo layout of the new, um, oh, what was the mattress company? Some new amphitheater that they had just built. 
like the sleep good amphitheater or something. I don't know. <laughs> and, and I'm like, Oh wow. Nice. Like, I don't care. And she goes, yeah, the amphitheater for the red hot chili pepper show that you're not going to next week. Uh, I don't remember even buying tickets to the Red Hot Peppers, but I remember that day so clearly. <laughs> so uh, that was when I knew I was super busted. And they sent in a thing saying that I was going to uh, get expelled if I missed any more days of school. And I proceeded to continue to ditch class. So, uh, so I had to go. Uh, yeah, I but think- that's sucked that school really was a horrible place to be for me we probably would have been pals in high school because i fucking split like i was the same but i just like i liked learning i just thought everything was bullshit around me and i discovered like i started hanging out at a theater in high school so i was like why the fuck would i go to this shitty suburban high school when i could go to the city and smoke pot and walk by lake michigan 100 <laughs> percent yeah, I love learning too. I we probably would have been buds. And there are so many people that find a way to just kind of buck up and get through all of that stuff. I guess for some people it's not as bad of an experience, but uh I have a lot of respect for for the kids that don't really feel like they fit in or that it feels like an authentic experience. And they're able to get through it, you know, and even maybe get good grades while they're at it. But I've always loved learning. That was definitely never the problem. And, and, and probably the same for you, you know, along the way, every once in a while, you do find one of those teachers that you do really connect with and you actually respect. And, and those are kind of like the, you know, the stepping stones that kind of get you through the whole process to some degree and I'm really thankful for those adults that kind of helped usher me along. But, uh, but yeah, I did not, I did not like that regular high school at all. And I'm so glad that I went where I went, even though I suck at math and, <laughs> and don't know a lot of stuff that I should know at this point in my life. Yeah. But you might still suck at math. Like I suck at math and I just think, I just don't think my brain is, it's just my brain is like fuck this like you got a calculator like who gives a shit (laughs) if you're not interested in it it's hard to yeah it's hard to engage for very long like i wish i understood like physics and when you hear like that kind of high-end philosophical math speak i'm like uh, i wish i could comprehend this but i can't Mm -hmm. and so i'm just you know I don't know. I'll, I'll talk about the monkeys or something. <laughs> that I, I could show, throw you references about Mickey Dolan's that no one needs to know. <laughs> oh, that kind of encyclopedic mind. Uh, not always. I, I, I've, it's been getting weak lately. Um, was piano, was that something you wanted to take or was that something imposed on you by your family? I'm going to be in LA soon. So I hope that it cools off before I get there. When are you coming? I am coming. Dang, I don't have the dates in front of me right now. Oh. With the um, band? Actually, so Jason, the other person in telenovela, which I guess I should specify, uh, or at least the other like uh, sort of permanent member, because we have a rotating cast of characters that we tour with. Um, all really good friends of ours. But uh, Jason was originally his first main band that he was ever in is in a band called Voxtrot. And they were very popular in Texas, 
and in like bigger cities like New York and LA, kind of in the early 2000s, in that era when like, you know, Arctic Monkeys, which was a band that they toured with and uh, Beirut and like stuff like that. Uh, that was their heyday. And then uh, they broke up before I even met Jason. But um, they were good. It was like it was like rock, but also a little twee, a little Bell and Sebastian-esque, but kind of edgier. They're doing a whole reunion tour thing. And they're I think they're playing. So they're playing tonight as their first show in, I don't know, 13 or 14 years in Lockhart. Um, and it's just like a little warm up thing, but then they're playing Webster hall next week, which I was going to go to, but I'm not now. So I'm just going to go to the LA shows and I'm excited because I just like, I want to see them, but I also really enjoy just being in California since I'm from there. Uh, so I'm going to make a little vacation out of it. Hopefully see some old friends. Uh, they're playing at a place called the Regent theater. Sure. And then they have a second show at Echoplex. Um, I've been hammered in both of these places. (laughs) (laughs) I used to live in Echo Park, so I'd walk the Echo would have residencies on Mondays. And I just, I would go no matter what and just be like, and I knew everybody that worked there. So I didn't pay for drinks. Always a dangerous lifestyle when you have free drinks all over the city. (laughs) Definitely. But it's a real good money saver because you know how quickly that can add up. Yeah. And I bartended. So it was just a trade-off thing. It was just like... Yes, I was a bartender for a very long time. So that was definitely my my bartering currency was alcohol. Um, What kind of bar? uh, I worked at two main places in Austin. One was called Rio Rita, which was, in my humble opinion, the coolest bar in Austin. It doesn't exist anymore. It was actually one of the reasons I moved here. I was on tour. And, you know, there was a couple of things. The heat was absolutely atrocious. And at first I thought I could never live in a place like this. But then I went to this bar and they were having a a player own records night. And I just looked around, the drinks were like $2. And I was like, holy shit, I could totally live here. (laughs) 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 And, uh, and you know, lo and behold, two years later, I get a job there and I worked there for years. I loved it. But eventually a new bar right next door opened up in this old house called Leech's Cantina. Still there, very cool spot. It's like a mezcal uh, and interior Mexican food joint. And I just, I hated to leave Rio Rita, but they made a lot more money. And you could get off of work about four hours sooner than when I was usually getting off. Because I'd get off of work at like four in the morning. Is Austin, or is it like four o'clock bars? Or three o'clock? No, they close at two, but we just wouldn't get out of there until four because it would just be a hellscape of insanity. Like it was a very popular spot. I know. So there's, you know, I know that well, and I know <laughs> wanting to live in a neighborhood because of a bar, which is such yeah. a distinct. Like you're like, oh yeah, I'd fucking live in this neighborhood. This bar is great. This like has nothing else to do with the neighborhood. <laughs> I know, but I miss, I miss like connecting with a spot that intensely because since that place went away, you know, there's, I'm, I'm kind of a creature of habit. I like to eat at a lot of the same restaurants and, and go to the same bars and given I live in a much smaller town now, but even going to Austin as frequently as I do, 
there's no like one spot where I'm like, that's my place. And when I go there, I run into people I like. I don't have that anymore. I'm sure you do in LA because there's so many more options, but that, uh, having a, a, a little watering hole sort of resonate with your identity, um, is such a lovely feeling. And, and I really, really had that for a while and it was fun. Yeah, I did have that, but did, this it's changed so much in LA that the bars I liked still exist, but they either made them fancy and nice or they just, the clientele changed and you're just like, yeah, fuck this place. (laughs) And I like a divey, like I like to be like the youngest guy there. And that's saying a lot (laughs) because I like to pick up all the older ladies. Cause if I'm the handsome one there, no, but well, then I have the perfect bar for you the next time you come to Austin. Okay. You, you belong at Don's Depot. That sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely your spot. It's like a, it's like an old train station themed bar that where the carpet hasn't been changed since like 1972. Yep. Uh, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. There was a bar in downtown LA. I worked at a dive bar in downtown LA and there was a divier bar that I would go to sometimes after and you would hear women talking about uh, like, like there's there, cause there was a prison also nearby. <laughs> so you Holy would hear, shit. I heard a woman correcting. He's like, Oh no, he's first, he's got to do his federal time. Then he's going to do his like, and it was just like, it was oh, like wow. you would hear talk conversation like that. And you're just like, Oh, this is fucking like a book I want to read. <laughs> yeah. They're living the life they sing about over there. Yeah. Back to, I did the, the piano. Was that something imposed on you or was that something you were? Yes, definitely. Was it, was it awful? Uh, or not awful. That's it. It was a Yeah. I mean, well, yes and no. I did not enjoy it. I mean, they started putting me in, in piano lessons when I was five because we inherited my great grandmother's piano. I'm the oldest of six kids. Damn. Um, I'm the youngest of five, by the way. Oh, wow. Okay. On the other end of the spectrum. Um, And so basically, so my grandfather was a classical guitarist and um, pretty well known in Sacramento, which is not really that impressive, but uh, very beloved. You know, he played at all the restaurants and he was a teacher for God. I think he's still teaching and he's like 86. He's been teaching for probably 40 years now at the Peace Conservatory. But my mom grew up really loving my grandfather. He's uh, such an amazing man, but kind of difficult to connect to if you're not like a child or a musician. Um, And so my mom is a painter and always just wished that she'd played an instrument because I think she always felt like she would have been closer to her dad if she had been. And so when I was born and we got the piano, it was like, you're going to be a classical pianist. And she kind of had it all mapped out for me. Um, So I started at five and I really never wanted to do it. Although I, I would be lying if I said I didn't enjoy it, you know, a fair amount of the time. But what I really did is I wanted to write my own songs and I was doing that since I was a little kid. Um, just instrumental stuff. I really didn't start singing to music probably until I was 14 or 15. 
And then, um, but it became more and more tedious as I got into my teen years because they put me with more advanced teachers who just didn't want to deal with teen students who didn't actually feel hungry to learn, you know? Like, to me, it was like this thing that I had to fulfill to please somebody else. So I'd show up having not practiced my pieces and kind of just trying to learn it by ear on the fly right before my, you know, my thing. And the funny thing was I was practicing a lot, but I just wasn't playing the pieces I was supposed to be learning. So um, eventually I had this really cool teacher at the Peace Conservatory who almost kicked me out because he could tell that I just didn't want to be there. And something happened where I, when I started going to that experimental school, I told him that I was learning guitar and that I really preferred it. And he said, well, why don't you start bringing your guitar in? And I did, and I started playing these little songs that I was writing, which weren't very good at the time, but he was so seemingly impressed. I don't know how, because I've heard the recordings of that stuff, and it's really (laughs) awful. But he was super, super encouraging, and we became very close friends kind of for the first time where I would show up at my lessons and I would play him songs and he'd give me constructive constructive feedback and he'd make me mix CDs of like Fred Neal and stuff and lend me books, lend me like Herman Hesse books. And then he got me, he felt guilty that we, that's what we were doing when I was supposed to, when my parents were paying him to teach me how to play piano. So he got me the scholarship that basically paid for all the rest of my lessons until I turned 18. And uh, we still did piano stuff, but it just kind of became this like weird, like spiritual guidance, music in general, book chat. And um, it's strange we didn't stay friends through adulthood. I wonder what he's doing very often, but we haven't stayed in touch. But he really changed my life and kind of made me feel like I could do the whole like guitar and singing thing because my parents were not encouraging. I remember my mom walked into the room once and was like, do you actually think that sounds good? Um, And she was just that I wasn't playing piano. So I'm super grateful he was there. Isn't it? I just, I don't know. Those people that obviously he saw something in you. Like, I know you said, like, oh, these songs were good. Obviously, he saw something. Otherwise, why would he invest? Yeah, he did. And I'm, and I'm so happy he did because nobody, I mean, I wouldn't say nobody else did, but in that particular area of my life, nobody was very impressed. Uh, and that's totally fair. I mean, I would. I think that it's hard to see, unless you're really paying attention, I think it's hard to see potential when someone's at the very beginning of something because you have to suck for a while at whatever it is you're trying to do. Like, everybody sucks in the beginning for the most part. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. He He just really felt like there was clearly way more promise with that than with piano even though I had been doing piano for so long and maybe it was as simple as the fact that he could tell how excited I was, you know, because I wasn't excited to go in and play, you know, these Bach, even though I'm a huge fan of Bach, I was not excited to play these Bach pieces I was learning. Um, but I was excited to play, you know, C, G and E with my 
feeble little lyrics sung over the top of it. So, um, and you would share your songs that you wrote, you would play them for him. Mm -hmm. How was that? Do you recall the first time you did that? What that felt like? I definitely remember it very clearly. Um, like I said, like, I mean, it's kind of embarrassing because I feel like it, it feels like I'm patting myself on the back and I'm really not because I know exactly how that song sounds, but he, he really seemed genuinely impressed in a way that he almost seemed like taken aback. And I, and I really don't understand that because I, I have a recording of that song that I recorded maybe a year and a half later when I was 16 um, and it's not a good song <laughs> and I barely sing, but I just, it really made me feel like, Oh wow. Well, if he's impressed, maybe I should keep doing this, you know? Um, and it was an incredible feeling. It just felt like, Oh, this is me. I'm, I'm really showing him who I am right now. All these other times I've come in here and played music over the years that was my mom, but this is like my thing. Um, that's so a, it was cool. That's a very definitive realization to be like, this mm-hmm. is me, not, and that's my mom. I, I mean, that's pretty astute for 16. I don't know if I, I, I also was probably pretty dumb. <laughs> <laughs> also probably on Coke, but that's besides the point. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's a pretty, that's a pretty aware realization for a 16 year old. Don't you think? I suppose you're right. Um, and you know, I don't even, I'm not even sure I've ever taken the time to really pinpoint that moment prior to this chat that we're having. But, uh, I do think that was, that was a really fucking huge year for me. And I, and I figured out a lot of stuff. Um, you know, about myself. And that was the year that I left that school that I got kicked out of and met a whole different group of people that, you know, felt like I had a lot more in common with and a lot of big things happened. So yeah, it was, it was like an epiphany for sure. Um, and everything definitely changed after that pretty quickly. It's like, if you didn't have that realization, then the other stuff, may have not happened and that's a major shift because i remember that moment too where i was like and i i went to this theater all the time and i went so often that one of the the staff started recognizing me and then the one guy was like oh come on into the show and like we became friends and that's how i started working there and like i went from being some dumb fuck suburban kid to hanging out with like artists and musicians and doing drugs thank god for the drugs (laughs) but it was like the world opened up where it was like, it's not the dumb fuck books you read in English class anymore. It's people handing me, you know, Jim Carroll and fucking Sartre and shit. You would never even have come your way as a teen. Wow. Yeah. That sounds like that. Definitely. That whole experience for you sounds like your version of, of, of what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, how old were you when you started doing that? I went to this theater for the first time when I was 15. And then when I could drive, I would go, they would do free improv sets afterwards. And I would go every chance I could, I would go see the free improv sets. I'd go with friends. I'd go alone. I didn't give a fuck. And I would just like, and I went so often that they started recognizing me. And then I, 
then they were inviting me to like after parties, which is like insane. I was 16 and 17 and then going to punk clubs and fucking nightclubs and dive bars and hanging out with blues musicians. <laughs> like it was crazy. Did you when you, when you were older, I'm sorry. Did you have a fake ID when you were older? No, because the theater was prominent in Chicago and they would just like put on, like it was Second City. So they would put like a, one of the jackets on, like th- that's at Second City. And they'd be like, oh, he works with us. And we'd just walk into these places. And Chicago was, was a different place back then. So no one, like drinking underage was like not a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I'm just curious because most of my like cool friends, when we talk about, you know, that period of our lives, if I didn't already know them, which is most of my friends, they all had fake IDs. I never figured that out. Like I didn't know, I didn't know where to get one. And I bet you there were probably bars that I could have been drinking at without any issue, but it just didn't, it didn't occur to me that I would get away with it. I just assumed that. So I didn't get, I missed out on a lot of cool shit in Sacramento that I should have just figured it out and, and started going to those places long before I did long before I was 21. Yeah. It's, I've been to Sacramento. I dated a person in Sacramento for a while, which was, we won't go into that, <laughs> Uh oh. <laughs> but I really liked the town and like would go to little music venues and I don't know it was, it seemed like it had its really cool little creative. Not that sounded condescending when I said little, but like like its own. <laughs> it was all though. It was a really insular scene, but that was definitely part of the charm. Charm. That would be the better word. <laughs> yeah. When was that? When were you there dating the girl that you were dating? Around two thousand one. Okay, so that was. That was right uh, uh, not long before I became a part of the music scene there. Um, But you probably still were in a lot of the same places that I played and saw a lot of similar stuff. Yeah, I I just remember a lot of little coffee shops and whatnot. Like the True Love Coffee House? Yes. Do you remember that? I do remember that. Like Kevin Seconds? Yeah, that was owned by a punk dude, right? Or did you Kevin just say? Seconds. Oh, you did say. Yeah. you did say. I, it, From seven seconds. Yeah, I loved that place. Me too. I was I was going there in two thousand one because it was a coffee shop and not a bar, so I was able to go there, and that was probably when I was sixteen. It was probably the year that we're talking about all the stuff happening. I was definitely hanging out there and seeing like Cappy Gooley play and stuff like that. I don't remember anything I saw. <laughs> I just remember yeah, being like, and it, Sacramento in a weird way kind of reminded me of Chicago. Like the the apartments looked the kind of the same. There was just something similar about it. Like I don't know, and I really liked it. That's except, awesome. Except for the person I dated. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that didn't go well. Oh well. She can't be a representative of Sacramento, though. No, I liked Sacramento a lot. They were, it was like this very hippie-ish group of people. And when I first met her and her clan, I my first thought was the Manson family. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I met her in New York when I was, it was a weird sort of long story, but 
I met her with Speed Levitch. Do you remember Speed Levitch? They made a documentary about him. He would give tours. In, no. He, there's a documentary about him. He would give tours in New York City, and he's like this very weird, eccentric bus or street tour guy and very, 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 very intelligent. But she oh, was cool. with him. The Cruise is the name of the documentary. I think you'd dig it. Okay, I'll definitely look that up after we're done here. <laughs> what, but how, do you recall that song? Like, what what about that song that you said you didn't think is very good that you have on tape, which I really would like to hear, but I won't press it. But like, Ooh. what about it? Why do you think it's bad? And what do you do? You, can you figure out what he saw within that at all? Um. Yeah. I mean, I guess I can. I mean, it was just very cliche. Like. It's, there's nothing new there, you know, it's, it's a lot of simple chords and it's a very, very simple, albeit sincere sentiment. Um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I guess I could sort of see it, but it just, it's just very, very embarrassing. The idea of anyone ever hearing it ever again. So you're definitely not going to hear the <laughs> Oh man, I've, I've seen Ah, the shit of my like I I pity the generation now that puts everything on TikTok and YouTube. I'm like, you know, motherfuckers, this is gonna haunt you, right? And if that, <laughs> if, I would have ruined myself, like thinking I was being edgy Lenny Bruce guy. Like I would have been fucking ruined. <laughs> I think that all the time about social media, and the, I mean, people can go back and delete stuff, but the thing is, we remember stupid shit that we thought and did. Or like, you know, journals are great for that. You look at the journal and you're like, oh my fucking God, I thought I was so profound and this is just so incriminatingly stupid. Um, but like even, even sort of more ephemeral parts of social media, like Instagram stories, people are posting stuff that they're going through or like fleeting thoughts that they're having. And it's like, you know, you can delete that, but I remember it. And I remember <laughs> what you posted and it's totally affecting how much I respect you. And I'm going to keep that at the back of my mind forever. <laughs> and it's like, that's not private anymore. And I feel, kind of feel sorry for people who are publicly, you know, just having these really awkward phases and, and just putting it all out there and their friends are going to remember this shit because most of, most of my stuff like that, was very private and I didn't have an outlet to share every stupid thought that passed through my head. <laughs> and I'm very grateful. Yeah. But it like, I think about it and I, I thankfully I, I got rid of all my journals. So there's nothing. I don't Same. even have fucking photos from most of my life, but like, I remember my thought process and the things I remember a lot of it. But at least it's like you were tr you're trying to find yourself and you're trying to have to be creative and be different and you're challenging yourself I guess would be the better way. You're challenging the what exists even though you sound like a trite fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. And and I guess that process is always something to be respected um as long as like, yeah, as long as you can see some aspect of sincerity in, in the process, then I think there's value in it. 
Um, it's only when it's totally fake or put on or just to get girls or something that it feels like a waste of time or it feels like something we should poke fun at, you know? Well, it never got me girls, so I learned that was the wrong route pretty quick. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I'd get a lot of money and that would work, but I never got the money. So I don't, I just luckily found one person that would sleep with me and now we have kids. (laughs) Yeah, there's... Not a lot of money in it. That's for damn sure. <laughs> but that's like the thing that fucked me up for a long time because you think that that's part of the success, and then you realize. And like I've seen friends get money and they're fucking miserable. Like all my friends who have money and success, I'm like, y'all look fucking miserable. Huh? Really? Yeah. I I don't have a lot of friends with money. <laughs> I I mean, I know people with money and I'm not, I don't feel certain that they're miserable. I mean, I guess it just depends on how much we're talking about. I have more financial stability just in the last year or two than I've ever had. And I am definitely not rich, but the lack of stress has definitely improved my quality of life. But that's not really like, I don't think that's what you're saying. It's not having a lot of money. I just have some semblance of financial stability. I'm not like having the anxiety of figuring out how I'm going to pay my bills, you know? Yeah. Boy, that's a big, that it's horrible. Yeah. I've had a couple years where I'm like in that boat with you where I'm like, Oh, like I don't have, I can go to the grocery store and not like be calculating what is in my check. Like that fucking yeah. nightmare. Exactly. And, but, but I guess my friend's, that have success it's less the money and the more the pseudo fame and then they stop stop doing what they like they're not enjoying what they do anymore and i'm like this is not right like like it all becomes about well i gotta keep working and be in the fucking pick you know everybody's vision or whatever all that goodly do bullshit No, yeah, now I see, I can more clearly see what you're referring to now. The, the whole resting on one's laurels thing is very real. And I, I, do, I do know people on that situation. Like having creative success where it strangely disconnects you with the parts about the process that you loved. Because it's now only about the result and the love of the process is gone because you focused just on sort of like the legacy aspect of it or something. Um, I'm really grateful that I've never really had any success because I feel like I'm old enough to be past ever experiencing that. So even if anything, even if I do have any kind of morsels of success, I don't think that will ever happen to me at this point in my life, but I do think that it would have happened to me. Definitely. Yeah. But I also think that that success is subjective because to me, I look at your the work that you've done and you're on Kill Rock Stars and you've done cool shit and you play and you tour. To me, that's you did it. No, yeah, I mean, I consider that success, and I'm really happy with where I'm at. I just mean like in the way that you know it derails people's uh, passions and egos and things like that. Ego's a real motherfucker. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I mean, I've got like you did the the film overnight. Did you ever see that? It's a documentary mm-hmm. about a guy who gets a deal for his independent movie, and he just loses his fucking mind. He's got like a deal with Miramax, and everyone's like, he's the new Tarantino, and he just loses his fucking mind. And it's all in this documentary, and it's like, and it's easy. Like you start believing it, you're like, yeah, I'm this dude. I've been 
close to it. <laughs> where I was totally. like, no. and it's like it's so, especially if you you're fueled by liquor and that, and and live in a world of delusion, <laughs> which this oh, guy is. Like they, he, rapey, what's his name from Miramax get, buys him a bar, and there's Tim and his Boston buddies just get hammered. It's fascinating. Wait, this is a true story. It's a documentary about a dude who gets a film deal with Miramax and he, and like everyone's like, he's the new voice of a generation. And he just blows it. (laughs) He did. uh, Fuck. He did. I forget what movie he did. It's like a cult classic. Cause it's like so bad. Mm. Boondock saints. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. Oh, interesting. I need to see that documentary. You're giving me a lot of hot tips. Stuff to check out. I should change the name of my <laughs> podcast to Hot Tips. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, I mean, I I haven't obviously I don't really have any director friends, but man, I've definitely seen that happen with bands, like uh, bands who get signed to a big label and they get handed a big pile of money as an advance, and the advance gets either blown away or you know maybe it was spent all on recording and stuff like that but then they get really too big for their bridges they lose their their sort of like creative focus and they end up with a record that's not really reflective of what made them great in the first place and then you know then it's just I mean so this didn't happen but Jason was talking to me the other night because all this Vox Trot stuff has been a big part of our conversation lately because of the tour that they're going on and because it all preceded, you know, me coming into the picture and I've never even seen them play. But they, you know, they put out all these EPs that were super well received and they were kind of like lo-fi and really sincere and sort of like optimistic. And when they did the LP, they got signed to a major label and they did get a big budget but they went in and the record was, the songs were good, but it was very, very, very produced compared to all their previous material because they had like a big shot producer come in and work on it. And the the sense of the material had changed and it was maybe a little bit more like pessimistic and like frustrated and angry. And it wasn't the same band, basically, when it came out the other end of the of the production machine and Pitchfork gave it a really bad review and it kind of like totally derailed their career and they shortly thereafter broke up. Um, so even they are, Jason has experience with that and I can totally see that. And, and even though it hasn't happened to me, I feel like I can relate and, and easily imagine myself going down the same road of making all those same mistakes. And so when I say I haven't had like success, I just mean, I haven't ever been handled, handed a big pile of money or had like, an, you know, I've never had any fame to the point that I lost touch with what it was that I wanted to do. Um, but it seems so easy to me for that to happen. And I want to watch that documentary. Definitely. Really. <laughs> Well, also, too, you throw in the fact that a lot of these people get these deals or whatever. They're 24. They're young. I know. I, I, at 34, I would have, at 44, I would have fucked up. (laughs) It's like, it's like, like, there would have been no good time until maybe like two years ago. I'd be like, okay, I think I could, I'll be smart. Like, that's, I mean, that could say a lot about just me. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, totally. It can still happen. Um, I'm 38, and I I'm sure it's still possible for me to make mistakes. I shouldn't I shouldn't act like I've had it all figured out because it's it's easy to think that from this vantage point of living in Lockhart. Do you, do you, Lockhart's an inter, do you enjoy being in a smaller place now? Cause I definitely, big definitely. City, yeah. I feel like as I get older, like the big city life, I'm like, no thanks. Cause like we live outside Los Angeles and it's like a quiet little city with a cute downtown. And which, what is it? It's Monrovia, which is like, oh, I don't know that. look on your next Trader Joe's product. It's where the headquarters is. <laughs> Wow. Not to show off or anything. <laughs> Big deal. <laughs> I, I, yeah, um, okay, well then, I don't know. I don't know what Monrovia is like, but it sounds like you also opted for like a slightly slower pace of life. Maybe not to the degree of, that I'm in. This is a town of 14,000 people. Um, I own a vintage store on the town square, so that's how I survive. Um, and we, you know, our house is less than a three minute walk from my store. Um, there's a couple of bars and a couple of restaurants and a grocery store, but it's, it's a really sweet little town. And I would be lying if I didn't miss some aspects of big city life. Definitely. I miss having all the restaurants to choose from, but you know, I mean, I, I was just in LA last you know, a couple of weeks ago and I was buying these like $16 cocktails and it's just crazy how much further my money goes here. Like I have a higher standard of living. Um, there's really amazing people here. There's kind of an exodus of artists and musicians that left East Austin and all moved to Lockhart within the last like five to seven years because it's so much more affordable. Like at the time that we moved here, there was still houses for like $30,000 and (laughs) dramatically, but it's still very cheap compared to Austin where I think the median house goes for like 700,000 now. Um, but I can just focus on the things that I really want to focus on. I can spend more time cooking and actually exercising and get all my work done and do creative stuff and spend time with my friends. And there's just so much being in traffic and hustling in Austin that all the stuff that's really important to me just kind of, you know, was the grout and the tiles rather than like the actual focus of my time. So I, I'm really happy here and I've been here for almost seven years now. Wow. And that that sort of freedom, I think, helps free your brain for creative stuff because you're not dealing with the fucking grind. That, that was the whole idea. I mean, we were living in this house in East Austin, and I remember our rent went up to four ninety a person. It was Jason, my friend Amelia, and myself. And we were each paying four ninety, and I was like, when I'd first moved to Austin, I was paying two seventy for a huge room with a big closet, and I was like, that's it. This is getting out of control. <laughs> Figure out something else because this is absurd. And I'm not paying five hundred dollars a month for rent, and that was just seven years ago. And now, I think you can't get a room in a house for less than like eleven hundred a month. Motherfucker. Uh, 
it's crazy. But so at that point, I was like, we need to figure this out. And I, Lockhart was the closest small town to Austin. And I was like, fuck it. We're going to move to Lockhart. We're going to buy something. And I found a lot of land for $8,000 that we bought. Um, and then they were doing this thing in Texas because all the houses out here, they're all pure and beam foundations. They're not slab like you find in California. They're on these little stilts. So they're really easy to move especially the small little like 40s bungalows and stuff. So in Austin, all these little bungalows were getting knocked down, cost 20 grand to demolish a house. So I found this house after putting the word out for about a year and I approached the owner and we made a deal where he said, if you move this house out of here, you can have it for free. What? And so I figured out a way to move the house for 12K to to Lockhart and it was a lot of red tape. It took me about a year to get the city's historical commission to prove all this shit. It was really annoying because if you knock it down, nobody cares. If you move it, the historical commission has to get involved. And it's this whole thing. It makes no sense at all. Um, and I think some of that has changed in the last few years. But at the time, that was the deal. So, yeah, then we moved the house. And then we had to redo, you know, the electrical and get put the plumbing in and put in a foundation, blah, blah, blah. But it took it took a couple years to figure out all the details, but then we had a house. And that kind of changed the trajectory of our lives and put me in a position to where I could start figuring out how to open my own business. Um, which was absurd when I first opened a vintage store here. It seemed so crazy to everybody because it was not a lucrative business. Um, and most of my sales were online because it really just felt like the middle of nowhere. But the town has really grown and changed and people don't think I'm crazy anymore. So <laughs> it worked out. Fuck. Like I would need to have, I would need to like rob a Brinks truck and uh, several Brinks trucks to have a fucking home in California. Anywhere in California. Oh my God, it's crazy. We're getting it's the fuck so out. It's so crazy. Like, even a shitty house is like a million dollars, right? Yeah. Like, I've looked like 800 square feet. Like, and I'm like, that's, but fuck you, 800 square feet. <laughs> it's like, I mean, I when you have like two kids. Yeah. We plan on leaving anyway, just for multiple reasons. This, this, the entire state because I'm just like I'm done I'm so fucking done with it I'm just like what am I going to be 80 and fucking working five jobs like fuck you the answer is yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I the answer be is yes. the oldest drug dealer pimp <laughs> robber like burglar <laughs> person ever like that's that's <clears throat> oh my god but like as a broad thing like the country then specifically the state has to figure it out because it's like you're not going to have any working class people you're not going to have anybody to fucking fix your car if you keep pricing people out like just basic necessity 100% correct I mean you know I mean I bring that up all the time even just here in town even though this is such an affordable great place it's like we're getting more and more restaurants you know I employ a lot of young people at the vintage shop and it's like you guys we need to be paying these people a living wage and we need to keep rentals here. Everything can't be an Airbnb. Everyone's getting like all these Airbnb ideas with their mother-in-law houses and stuff. And it's like, well, we need people here that, that have to have rentals because they're not ready to buy houses yet. And so that's been an ongoing battle 
only recently it's become the beginning of a, of a serious issue that could be a problem a couple of years from now that I'm trying to nip in the butt now because I've already been through this whole song and dance with East Austin and saw it happen there. Um, and I'm trying to be more responsible with how it all plays out and do my part. Yeah. But it's just going to keep happening over and over and over again if we don't recognize it in the early stages. Um, you know, and Texas is, other than Austin, and, and certain places, it's really, really affordable compared to California. And there's a lot of Californians who are moving here kind of in droves. And, and I'm welcoming of it in a lot of aspects, but there's also parts of it that come with that, with that culture of like, just, you know, trying to like cultivate as much passive income as possible not to say that that's just Californian, but a lot of the Californians are bringing more and more and more of that here. And it's like, there just has to be limits to things because people have a right to have a place to live that they can afford and have a job. Yeah. I mean, I know of, I don't know personally, but a lot of people with dough who are buying houses in other States just because they can, it's like, it's an investment. And then maybe if we need to leave and it's like, you fuck, you're like, you're fucking other people. Like you're fucking other people Mm -hmm. hard. (laughs) If you're going to have an investment, it's like, if you're going to do that, you just have to be really responsible with it. And like, don't look at what the max that you can charge for rent is like charge a price that feels like someone can afford to live there. Cause there is a need for rentals. We can't turn our backs on that. Like people, everyone can't buy a house now until big changes are made. I'm in favor of that. As long as it's universal, you know, I'd love to see like huge policy changes where everyone could buy a house. But as far as like the circumstances are at the moment, if you're going to rent a house out, it just frustrates me when like friends of mine buy a house and it's like people here can afford a two bedroom for a thousand dollars a month. And they're like, well, let's see if we can get 1850, you know, it's like, fuck that. The only people that can pay that are people that aren't already here. And then it's going to bring in this whole other thing and they're not even going to work here and they're going to have like a tech job. I don't know. It's there's a lot of nuance to it. And it's like, just try and be a decent person whenever that opportunity presents itself. But I don't know, man, this message hasn't been very popular. Start putting <laughs> uh, gang tags on things. So people think like the, you know, crips are there and that'll scare yeah, so- and just like shoot <laughs> off a gun once in a while. It's Texas. So that probably happens anyway. <laughs> don't worry that that's totally covered. <laughs> But the gang thing, maybe just like find a, find an already dead body and throw it in the street and then make it look like a murder. <laughs> I know that's work. I like that. I'll just board up my windows and let the grass fall. Or, you know, pentagrams. Put some pentagrams. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. The local covens. I like that. Um, I wanted to go back to the song thing because I know not, I, we got off base, which I like. But like I was, when did you, did you have a moment where you felt like, okay, I'm like you were writing these songs you don't like, or that, was there a moment where it clicked and you were like, oh, I got it. Like, this is, I've got my voice. I got my song. I know what I'm doing. So, um, so in regards to like going as far back as we were talking about earlier, I will say that I definitely thought that I was really good at the time. <laughs> 
So there was no problem there. I was very confident that this is what I wanted to do. It wasn't until later that I realized that it was horrible or I thought that it was horrible in retrospect, but I, I thought that I was good, but you know, that just wasn't like the greatest reception, especially from my parents and stuff like that. And so that's why it was really, uh, it was really a life changing moment when my piano teacher seemed to also think that I was on the right track. And so from then on, I really was able to kind of just follow my own gauge somehow, even though I went through a lot of phases of making pretty cheesy music, I think, or corny or, or following trends at the time. I unfortunately was like really, really influenced by Ani DeFranco, which, you know, I have a lot of respect for Ani DeFranco. I think she's an amazing person, but I don't remember who said it, but someone once years ago was making fun of like how Bob Dylan is a great musician, but people influenced by Bob Dylan, it's like a trap. Um, and it's kind of a similar thing with Ani DeFranco. Like she's great. She figured out her own thing, but anyone who claims to be influenced by her, it's almost always a bad thing. And it definitely was in my case. Um, but you know, so yes, it clicked, but not in the sense that I think that you're describing. However, fast forward to much later in life, I've had several moments like that. Um, when I first started the band Agent Ribbons, um, you know, I had always been a solo musician and I was working at a record store on K Street in Sacramento. It was mostly just painting the record store and like kind of cleaning it up and like pulling dead bats out of the bins and stuff. <laughs> because we had a lot of dead bats and leaks and you had to switch the buckets out to catch all the rainwater that came in. So um, I wasn't, wasn't really like a clerk at the record store, but um, this guy named Jamie worked there and he had this really cool girlfriend named Lauren that I liked. I just liked her vibe. She just looked cool. She seemed really even keeled and like, um, you know, you could tell that she was like, fully dressed in thrift store clothes, but wasn't really putting that much thought into it beyond she just kind of had a, an innate good taste. And so I really started kind of pursuing her friendship whenever she'd come into the record store. And one day she told me that she bought a drum kit and I was like, Oh shit. Well, I just booked this show at Luna's cafe. Why don't you come over to my house and set up your drum kit and we'll have a practice. And if it goes well, we'll play the show together. And she was like, okay. But she'd never really drummed. She'd like kind of messed around right after having bought the kit. So she brings it over. We play through the set. But it's like borderline totally improvised. And she, once again, she's not a drummer. And I'm like, all right, we've got a band. And so we played our first show two days later. And that's how the band started. And... Lauren never really was like a drummer drummer. She kind of just played drums and that was what was kind of cool and fun about what she did. Uh, it was really off the cuff and like bizarre. Um, and that moment was, a was definitely like another click moment where it's like, Oh my God, I love doing this. It's so much fun to play music with somebody else. And now it's like this whole other thing. Um, and then the other time that I had it was with Merlin Bell and Telenovela. I thought that, you know, 
telenovela was done. We'd moved to Lockhart. We hadn't played in years. And uh, randomly PBR, the beer company, reached out to us and was like, hey, um, we know you guys haven't like been doing anything for a while, but do you want $9,000 from PBR to make a record? And I was like, this is so weird. Um, I don't have any material really, but let's just say yes and take the money. <laughs> um, and so their whole, the stipulation was that they had to send the money to like a, a recording engineer. They wouldn't just hand you the cash. So we had them send it to our friend Danny, who had a studio set up here in Lockhart. And we just started recording one song a month. And I was just writing them as we went along. And, and then we, at the end of it all, we had this record Merlin Bell and it was our first record in maybe three years or something and I for a while thought it was going to be a solo record I I didn't really feel sure Telenovela was still a band but with several conversations with people they talked us into remaining Telenovela I was actually going to call the project Merlin Bell and then that's how that ended up being the record title instead um, but that record it was like three songs in I was like holy shit this is the music that I've been wanting to make the whole time we were doing telenovela. I just, I just didn't know how to figure it out. And, and now we just finished our second record a week ago and it's, it's different, but it still exists within that same realm. And I just really feel like we've been, we found like a palette and a sound that it just feels so right. It's like, I don't know. It's sort of minimal and it's weird and off kilter and we can use drum machines, but we can also use like kitchen sink percussion and, um, and it feels so ascertainable and organic to me. And I used to feel so far away and separated from the recording process. Thank you for listening to this episode with telenovela Natalie Ribbons. Remember, there is a part two. There's a little bit of a part two. We talk about Ryan Sambal of The Strange Boys and a wonderful thing he did and a couple other things. Part two, Patreon exclusive. Link in the show notes. Thank you very much for listening. Where did you go?